from the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating, true stories from around the Old North State. Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Just to recap the first two episodes, 19-year-old Nell Cropsey goes missing. Her body is found 37 days later in the river. The report of the physicians that performed the autopsy stated that Miss Cropsey met her death through a blow to the head and being drowned in the river. Her former suitor, James Wilcox, was found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death, but the North Carolina Supreme Court gave him another trial. The second trial is moved to Perquimans County, where he's found guilty of second degree murder and he's going to be serving 30 years. Join us now for the conclusion of the murder of Nell Cropsey, Episode 3, Jim Wilcox, Guilty or Not. Welcome to Debbie, Blake, and Chris Meekins, our archivists who have been on this story. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. In the last episode, Jim Wilcox was convicted of second-degree murder. He's serving 30 years in central prison. That's here in Raleigh. Gone off to prison in 1903. Elizabeth City is still talking about the case. But there is a very interesting letter printed in the News and Observer, February 4th, 1903. Debbie, talk about the significance of this letter here. If we thought things were weird before this, then things really start to get strange now. And one of the first things that comes out is this letter that was published in a New York newspaper and it was mailed from Utica, New York on January the 27th. And it supposedly, the article itself, supposedly names who really killed Nell Cropsey. And they state categorically that it was not Wilcox. The letter is picked up by the News Observer and, for the most part, is printed verbatim with one glaring blank in it, but it's reported in the News Observer on February 4th, and it says, the dog led her to a poplar tree or high shrubbery, and there she saw a man whom she recognized, and he struck her with a stick which he held in his hand. The article goes on to say, he left the Cropsey residence on the fatal night 20 minutes after Wilcox. Okay, he's not named in the article. There's a blank space left where they reported the name. But there was only one other man at the Cropsey residence that night who left, and he left about 20 minutes after Jim Wilcox. And his name was Roy Crawford. Leroy Crawford. And this is the first time we see mention of maybe there was somebody else that did this deed rather than Jim Wilcox. So this letter has no author. It just says this didn't happen the way it did. There was someone else. It has no author in the News and Observer. Supposedly, the New York letter actually did say not only Crawford's name, but was also signed. So we are at our missing document moment of the series where the New York world, the issue of that newspaper that contained this letter is at least not extant 
on microfilm. It's worth maybe diving into some repositories to see if they have a paper copy somewhere mm-hmm. at some point, if you could find that. And in that, I think it names both the person and has a signature of the individual. But there is yet another layer of mystery to this letter. Because once it's published in the newspaper and it gets out and word gets out, this was sent to Wilcox's father, this letter in January. But the father of Nell had received one three days before they found Nell's body. He received this same letter from the same town, Utica, including a pen and ink drawing of the riverfront where the Cropsey house was and an X marking the spot on where they find the body. He dismissed it entirely out of hand, thinking it was a fake, or at least he claimed once the second letter appeared. Yeah, the weirdness really starts getting good about now. You know, Jim, he's at Central Prison. And at this point, the defense took the case to the Supreme Court again in May on the basis that the evidence is not of such a character as would justify the finding of the verdict in this case beyond a reasonable doubt against the defendant. But the higher court found no error in the trial. So it was going to stand as it had happened. It upheld the verdict That's of right. guilty and second-degree murder. And 30 years in prison. I think now might be a good time to talk about the attorneys in this particular case because these guys were not young lawyers. These were well-seasoned lawyers. They were both men that were very well thought of in the community. Both were very eloquent. And that's one of the things that keeps coming up in the information that's in the newspapers is how eloquent these men are when they're speaking. So we don't have a state versus a dream team. We've got pretty much equal attorneys on both sides. So this is Ward and Idlett. That's right. um, George Ward and Edwin Idlett. I have a soft spot in my heart, I think, for Idlett because I question some of how he tried the case. But I have to say he looked after Jim Wilcox after the trial was over. He did everything he could do for his client. He didn't just forget about him. Anything within the law that he could do to help Jim, he did. But at this point, the last legal appeal had happened. There was nowhere else he could go with the appeal process. But there's still one more step he can take. And Idlet steps right up and takes that step almost immediately. And we see in the Morning Post, the Wilmington paper from December 15th, 1904, there is one step to take, and it's a big one. It's a petition to pardon from the governor. In November of 1904, immediately after the second Supreme Court opinion had been rendered, they start the process to petition. Now, Nell's uncle, Andrew G. Cropsey, in New York, upon hearing upon the pardon request, indignantly replied, and I quote, if he serves one day less than 30 years, there is no sense of justice. We're sort of relying on newspapers to inform us about the pardons because pardons are restricted records in North Carolina State Archives. So even our own archivists can't look at these records because they're restricted. Right. Access is restricted and we can't even see if there is one there or not. We can't tell you that. And it should be noted as well, although there is a roster of prisoners for central prison, we can't check that either to confirm that Wilcox, we know according to the papers he was in, but we can't confirm it from a primary document. Well, we can confirm it from the census because he appears in the the census census. as a prisoner. 
at Central Prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, the newspapers are full of the details of Wilcox's pardons and his requests and his time in jail. And a lot of that narrative comes from there. So as we see in a News and Observer of December 21st, 1918, we're skipping a few years ahead, such opposition as Andrew Cropsey's did not deter the defense from trying to obtain a pardon. Every newly elected governor was a new opportunity seized by Wilcox's defense. In 1917, the newly elected governor was Bickett, but he declined the first petition. But again, they tried in 1918. This time, Pickett changed his mind, and it was solely because, in amongst all the other material he received, he received a letter from Wilcox. And in that letter, Wilcox stated, Were it my last words on this earth, I would still protest my innocence and would not be going before my maker with a lie on my lips. I come and ask you for mercy, and should you see fit to grant me a pardon, I can assure you I would not cause you one regret for having done so. Not only did Wilcox speak for himself at this particular point, prison officials also sent letters to the governor, and they cite in their letters the exemplary nature of the prisoner's behavior for the 15 years that he's been in prison, and they ask for mercy on his behalf. Elsewhere in that same edition of the newspapers that Chris was quoting, the December of 1918, there's an opinion piece that comments about all of the mystery surrounding this particular case. And it says, and I quote, as Wilcox has pursued a policy of silence during the nearly 16 years in prison, it is unlikely that he will clear up the mystery now that he has been made a free man. And on December 20th, 1918, James Wilcox is granted a pardon and he's released from prison. Within days, he returns to Elizabeth City. And except for his loyal friends and family, he did not get a hero's welcome when he got back to Elizabeth City. Yeah, so he's been jailed for 15, 15, over years. 15 years. This is almost, this is 19 years after the crime. And a little more because he was in county jail first. That's right. So he's been in jail since 1901, 19, early 1902. James Wilcox returned to live in Elizabeth City where his almost every action made the news. Any incident, no matter how small, was deemed newsworthy. If he fell and broke his ribs, it got reported in the news. If he was in a car accident, it was reported in the news. But also, one additional thing, it was always tied to the Cropsey case. Jim Wilcox of the Nell Cropsey trial broke his ribs. Jim Wilcox of the Nell Cropsey trial had a car accident. So he was always forever tied to the crime, despite the fact that he received a pardon. No way in which to get away with it. So in Away in, from it, sorry. So in any trial after the verdict, life goes on, except, of course, for everybody, and this includes Nell because she's not here. Her family, Wilcox and his family, the attorneys, everyone 
uh, involved Muzon, but the trial still consumed the people of Elizabeth City. The actions of the major players in the trial made news as soon as the verdict was passed and continued to do so. One juror committed suicide in 1904. Nell's father was reported to have been dead in 1906, but that wasn't true. In 1908, Guy Hall, who had been a staunch supporter of Wilcox, was involved in a scheme to defame a young woman. The attorneys and doctors began to die. Jim Wilcox's father passes away. Prosecutor Ward passes away. But each obituary and each mention of anybody in this trial had to do with the parenthetical phrase of the Cropsey case. We see in the News and Observer article from February 1913, yet another tragedy added to the story. And this is the son, William H. Cropsey Jr., commits suicide. Now, this was fodder for many rumor mills, as you might imagine, that a tragedy beget a tragedy. Although Cropsey Jr.'s wife stated unequivocally that he had had alcohol and financial problems, and that had led him to take his own life. The rumor mill still ran otherwise. Newspapers reported that he was worried about the possibility of parole for Jim Wilcox, and he was even purported to have said, quote, there is one thing left for me to do as a protest against that, end quote. So I looked at his death certificate, and he poisoned himself. That's right. Yeah. Reporters continue to hound Wilcox to tell his story, and they are all met with rejection, except with one notable exception, and that is William O. Saunders, the independent newspaper editor, finally got Wilcox to agree to speak with him. Now, they had long been associated as Saunders had started as a cub reporter reporting on the 1902 and 1903 trials for the Norfolk newspapers. In 1915, rumors abounded that Wilcox was near death in prison, and he did indeed have tuberculosis, so he was sick, and he was confined actually to Central Prison's hospital for a while. During that illness, he finally spoke to Saunders, and Saunders asked him if he had any theory as to who had harmed Nell Cropsey, and Wilcox answered, none in the world. And this really struck the reporter. And the reporter said, it struck me that a guilty man would in 12 years have fabricated a dozen explanations to vindicate himself. One would think that a murderer protesting his innocence and hoping for pardon would have concocted all sorts of theories to square himself. Saunders kept encouraging Wilcox to make a statement or even just to write it down if he wasn't willing to talk to him actually. But Jim never would do that. But that didn't stop Saunders from trying. He kept on trying to convince him to tell his story. Then in 1934, at age 58, sick and fueled by alcohol, James Wilcox shot and killed himself. And at that point, all hope of a statement was lost. Saunders, in 1934, wrote some long articles about Wilcox's suicide, and 
he had offered Jim money to publish a book in 1929 or so, and Jim had said no. There were rumors that they were going to get in a boat and row out in the middle of the river and just let him tell his story. Saunders showed up, but Wilcox didn't. So never quite got on record with that. But Wilcox did tell a close friend two things. One, he said, Mr. Cropsey could have named the killer, but chose not to do so. And two, he had written his story and hidden the pages in a tin can buried in lower Paswatank County at a place called Frog's Island. If his friend could find those pages, he was welcome to publish them. And those pages have never been found. And the profound mystery of what happened to Nell Cropsey once she stepped out into that hall with Jim may never be known. So this comes from newspaper accounts. From Saunders. From Saunders. It's Saunders' rendition of he went around and interviewed Jim's friends and family. It's the first time in a very long time that the family made a public statement about Jim and the whole murder trial. It's still a very human interest story, and the people of Passwatank and Elizabeth City especially are very tuned in. So what does this case really tell us? We need to contrast it, I think, with the story that we started out with first, and that is Frankie Silver. We didn't have a whole lot of documentation for that particular case and a real lack of newspaper accounts related to that particular case. And this is just the exact opposite because we have plenty of documents and we we have the testimony for four different trials as well as the supporting documentation that goes with those trials. We've got an almost endless number of newspaper accounts that we can look at. But in spite of all of this documentation, the interpretation of those materials is very different among people, and people have very interesting and debatable opinions about what really happened with that. And even when we disagree about the interpretation of the various aspects of the case, it doesn't really preclude us from coming to the same conclusion about it. And that's another thing to me that makes this case enormously interesting. It's just a very, very interesting case when we have so much documentation. It strikes me, too, the Francis Silver case, that the letters that were written to the governor and petitioning for lenience for her were available because they were in the correspondence. But we know from the newspapers that hundreds, if not thousands of letters were written on behalf of Wilcox to the governor and particularly the last time to Bickett when he granted the pardon. So you have both put in an enormous amount of research on this case, looking at documents, looking at the documents in our collection, looking at newspaper articles. What has surprised you the most about researching this case, uh, the story of Nelcropsy? First of all, Chris and I came to this case from very different places, and we had some very different but very firm feelings about the case when we first came to it. And I'll have to tell you, frankly, the thing that surprised me the most was my reaction to the documents when I saw them, because I completely changed my mind about what I thought about this case after I read the documents and even after reading the copious amounts of newspaper coverage that respond to this. And I'm just going to lay it on the line. I don't believe that the prosecution proved Jim Wilcox's guilt. And moreover, I firmly believe that he was innocent of that crime. And as much as I like Idlet as his defense attorney, I think he could have done a better job at showing that there were other people that could have done this murder. There were four people in that kitchen on the night of November 20th, 
and we heard from only three of them. Why in the world was Roy Crawford not called as a witness in this case? Why indeed? He was one of three people alive to tell the story of what they knew about that night, and he was not called. I can't understand why neither the prosecution nor the defense called Roy Crawford as a witness. And besides that, where did he go? He disappears. Because the newspapers don't mention him at all. Once the hearing is done, he is never mentioned again except for in one newspaper article that said he left town. And was available for recall if they needed him. If they needed him. So, yeah. So looking at the records have caused you to change your mind. Yeah. Okay. And so, again, you know, as we said in an earlier episode, I grew up there and uh, sort of seemed to have just, I know, absorbed this story, you know, as part of a childhood tale, as rumors in the town. I never really had a chance to look at the records and look through the records. When I knew it was a rabbit hole, I would jump down if I had a chance to do so. But there's always been a lingering feeling in the town. You either believe Jim is innocent or you believe Jim is guilty. And if you believe him innocent, there are plenty of rumors about Nell and the Cropsies and, and this, that, and the other. There's one other interesting point I wanted to make, and that's about looking at the records. Because, Debbie, you had an interesting encounter with a patron who was also researching another murder. Tell us a little bit about that. I was working reference one day, and a lady came in, and she was um, looking at records of a murder in order to seek a posthumous pardon for someone. And she had been in the search room for several days, and we had been pulling records for her and giving them to her. Well, on the last day that she was there, she brought the box back up to me and said, you know what? He's probably guilty as all get out, but I've already made this effort to get the governor to pardon him, so I'm going to run with it. I was astounded that she had come to that conclusion after looking at the documents before they started looking for the material that might pardon him. Getting back to what Chris was saying, I think maybe the other thing that makes me think there might be someone else who actually did this crime, I have my thoughts on who I think did the crime. It probably comes as no surprise that I think that Roy Crawford is probably the guilty party in this particular case. There are a number of things that make me think that. The most important one was in Ollie's testimony and her original testimony. And she's talking about the evening of November the 20th when Nell goes missing. At one point, she just casually says that Roy put his hands on Nell. What she said is that he put his hand on her chin and said, Nell, you look sweet tonight. And I don't know. I just got chills when I read that. What on earth did that man have? What business did he have putting his hands on his girlfriend's younger sister and saying that to her? This 
particular part of the testimony never comes up in any of the newspaper articles. One of them mentions it, but it's never picked up by any of the others when they're talking about the testimony of Ollie. And there's an enormous amount of interest in Ollie's testimony. And this part is always left out. To me, it's just not normal that he would put his hands on Nell. It's creepy, for one thing, but in hindsight, it's way creepier. Well, and you're quoting from the Pasquotank trial, and the testimony is repeated in the Perquimans trial, and she adds just a little bit to it. He touched her chin like this, and she must have in court demonstrated the way in which he touched the chin. So someone may have caught that vibe that Debbie picked up. If this seems creepy, you better show exactly how he touched the chin so it seems maybe less creepy. Uh, I thought it was an interesting distinction that we talked to before about minor variations in the trial. Along Crawford's lines, the detective that was hired by the Committee of Five interviewed Crawford, but he never made testimony in any of the trials. It probably created a time issue for the prosecutor because we've talked about time and Crawford left the house at such a time that he should have come across Wilcox and Owens standing in the street talking. But when he got to the spot where Owens and Wilcox said they had had a conversation, they weren't there. But Crawford should have come across them. So that's a discrepancy of some 20 or 30 minutes, which is the time that they're saying that Wilcox had to commit a crime. I think this story transitioned from that in-the-moment sensational girl-gone-missing national search to a contested story of who done it, and that still creates a firestorm today. Thank you both for bringing us the story of Nell Cropsey. Debbie Blake, thank you. Chris Meekins. And there's an epilogue to the Nell story after we finished recording this last episode. On November 20th, 2019, 118 years to the day of Nell's disappearance, archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins drove to Elizabeth City to tour the Cropsey House, now in private ownership, to look at artifacts from the home collected at the Museum of the Albemarle, and to visit the graves of some of the major players. Nell, of course, was buried at the family cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. They took along a recorder, and here are some of their impressions. So there's nothing like canvassing an old cemetery. Looking for a stone, you have no idea where it is. Just trying to make that connection to that generation of cropsies. And so Debbie's taken one section and I've taken another. And we already had surveyed it from the car and now we're actually on foot. And we have a winner. Hang on. There's Andrew, there's Mama, and then there's Ollie. Okay, so we found three of the Cropsey headstones. Ollie, who is also known as Olive, who was in the room with her boyfriend, Leroy Crawford, and Nell and Jim Wilcox, the night that Nell disappeared, 118 years ago today. The mother of that group of Cropsies, and Andrew is the brother, older brother? He's the brother, yeah. I love standing here seeing Ollie. Because it, without her testimony, we wouldn't know half what we know, you know? Oh, yeah. The, I, I, the court just, testimony that she gives is amazing in the detail. And, and you know, um, obviously she died under the Cropsy name, so she never married. It, it affected the rest of her life. Thank you, Ollie. 
I'm so, so excited to see uh, see where Ollie is. Our first stop uh, in Elizabeth City, and our first stop in the cemetery, and we make a connection with someone who was there the night the event happened and whose testimony is key to our understanding of what was going on that night. Her relationship, her sister's relationship with Jim Wilcox and the whole nine yards. So it's just amazing. And then I uh, just flashed into my mind one this of the things that great. his mother, uh, Nell's mother pleaded with Jim that morning. That's right. Jim, please tell us. Please tell us for my sake and for your mother's sake. Please, please tell us. Please tell what, us. What happened to Nell? Okay, so we decided to take a nighttime stop at the old Hollywood Cemetery. We'd seen in a book some pictures of a headstone and mausoleum that kind of gave us a clue to where Wilcox might be buried. And we stopped, and uh, Debbie had to scrape some leaves off the ground, but there's Jim Wilcox's headstone in the ground, something that had been recently placed. Prior to that, his was unmarked. Debbie's a little overcome. And Debbie's a lot overcome. A lot overcome. Okay, I've, I've finally got myself together now, and I think I can actually talk. But what is really interesting about this is we came in here. It was not full dark yet when we got here, but we didn't have, um, we didn't know where the grave was. We just knew what the shape of the grave was, and all we could see were outlines of gravestones. And somehow, Chris got us directly parked right next to a gravestone that was shaped like what what we thought it should be and so we I wasn't going to get out of the car because I didn't want to see his grave until tomorrow morning and as soon as we got there I for some reason couldn't stay in the car and had to get out of the car and go and see if that was them and I could see just enough that I could see Wilcox on the obelisk, which we knew that was his father. And I didn't see Jim anywhere around him. And then I just happened to turn around and and I saw G Wilcox on one that was a flat stone. And so I started pulling the leaves away and it was Jim. And that's when I kind of lost it to just see him there like that. now arrived at the house in the dark and this is probably exactly what it looked like because we can see faint lights in the parlor and through the double front doors um, but there's no light upstairs um, in any of those windows and my guess is that that's probably was the case that night what did you say Chris 118 years ago or whenever that it was that yes. she went missing this night November 20th 1901 118 years ago that she went missing on this evening this has been a really really interesting trip one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we got down was our impressions of the house when we went inside and I knew that I was going to really have a, an emotional response to walking up on that porch and going through those doors and I did but I kept it together unlike at the cemetery yeah I was really startled by how 
close the double doors are, the door to the porch, and then there's a vestibule area, and you go through two more double doors before you get into the foyer of the house itself. And that's a very narrow area, and for some reason I had pictured that as being larger. The foyer, I think I had pictured as being about the size that it was. It's a yeah. good-sized foyer. So, I it mean... It seems just large enough to sort of open the doors and close them and open again so you're not letting heat, heat in and out in of the out. house. Right. And the there winter. seem to be double um, parlors on either side when right. you first go, th go into the foyer, and then you go further further into the foyer and there on the left there is a dining room mm. and directly ahead of you are the stairs going up um, to the second floor which is a very tight a much tighter area than I thought it was going to be but we actually had to go into the dining room to get into the kitchen very and interesting, yeah. the kitchen um, they have completely renovated the kitchen. It's a lovely kitchen, but, a lot of but it's wonderful. Too, the yeah. size of it is the same as it was then. It is just wonderful being in there because there was something very pleasant and homey about that kitchen. Um, and clearly that yeah. was that was where they liked to meet. You could see why that, that was a congregating Why that was place their congregating that, place. Yeah. Um, there's a fireplace in there, and they said that they met around the stove. My guess is that they had a wood-burning burn, or coal-burning stove in that, ki in that kitchen. But it is a surprisingly nice area. It's big because right. um, there's room for an eat-in table um, as well as the kitchen itself. Um, but that area was just very, very homey. They did take us out to the summer kitchen, um, which they said was the outbuilding in which the autopsy took place. Yeah, that and was a little we, spooky. We went into we went <laughs> into that space, and it um, it's it's being used, of course, now as an outbuilding. That's where they've got tools and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a large building for that, but for an autopsy with three physicians and a whole bunch of other people that would have what, been a four or five hundred people yeah looking that would be a close area there and of course the building was on a far corner of their property which it is not now it's up next to the house but still they said that all of the interior almost shiplap or um beaded board, and board yeah. all of that is original and the floor is also original that really kind of struck me is standing on that floor and, and what that floor must have been like after an autopsy. There are a few original objects associated with the Cropsies and Wilcox in the Museum of the Albemarle's collection, uh, one of which was the front doors, original front doors to the house, and they were kind enough to bring those out and let us look at them. That was kind of exciting. It was very cool to see those doors. They had some wood carvings by uh, Jim Wilcox, who evidently was, was quite a craftsman and handy with a tool. And that was even more cool just to see that he had actually made these things and he had made a real complicated um, series of crosses inside a bottle and um, it With was dated symbol, yeah. it was dated um, Christmas 1907 so he would he would have been he would have made that in prison and it was it was beautifully done as was the um, puzzle toy that he also made and then they have the original uh, photograph of Neil so we actually got copies of that as well and then there's a baby carriage that was found in the attic of the cro of the Cropsey house oh, yeah, that yeah. they figured that w was probably used by all the children and so we got pictures of that as well so it was just really cool
Good to see some artifacts. And so now we're standing, the Episcopal Cemetery is just actually behind the Museum of the Albemarle. And um, when they recovered Nell's body from the river and they finished doing all the examinations, um, they put her in a steel casket and they put her inside a mausoleum here in the Episcopal Cemetery. And it's very prominent, first thing you come to, uh, the Poole family mausoleum. Very interesting, it's, it's, it's neat to think and we're, we're standing here now looking at it, that uh, this is where her body, after it was recovered on December uh, 27th, spent the night. Yeah, after the autopsy. After this both is, autopsies, yeah, yeah the long this is autopsy. Where the, this is where um, they put her until they had the, the funeral that they had here. The next day, yeah. yeah. So she was overnight here. Thanks for joining us on our first season of Connecting the Docs. Our podcast team from the State Archives is Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. The program is engineered by Tom Normanley. In 2020, we'll continue to bring you stories through Connecting the Docs, where documents provide the evidentiary basis of a story, the framework on which to build a play, a novel, a song, or simply a discussion. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel, and thank you for listening.